Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. On the back of today's book, this thought-provoking paragraph begins like this. The leaders at Jonah believe that the answers lie in Joshua Arden, a young man with a hard life whose destiny could change the face of humanity and faith forever. The choice to accept the responsibility is his own. How will he choose? The title of today's book, Glorious Incorporated, The Joshua Chronicles, and our author, Stephen Neil Moore. Stephen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jay. Thank you very much. This has some ominous overtones. Explain the background and tell us the inspiration behind your book titled Glorious Incorporated, The Joshua Chronicles. This idea actually came to me, I guess, about 10 or 11 years ago. Uh, my profession is I'm actually you know, a professional consultant. I've been doing the corporate thing for the better part of 20 years. And... I always wanted to have some type of a book that gave a suspenseful meaning to not necessarily the corporate setting, but how corporations can be used to actually promote the power of good. So the first idea I had, I guess about, you know, when I was thinking about the concept of this 10 years ago was how, what would it be like if a supernatural force were actually running um, a corporation on this planet? Well, that didn't really pan out for me very well because I didn't know really where to take it uh, at that time. And I thought, well, what about the influences on humanity? So then we kind of got into some religious overtones, you know, that kind of crossed over with the supernatural just a little bit. So I thought, okay, let's try to simplify this. There's a guy that just wants to make it through life, had a really hard life. He wants to get a job in a corporate setting, and then he finds out something powerful is going on with this corporation. And then he kind of gets caught in the middle of a war between good and evil. He never chose this life. He never wanted this life. So he's got these two corporations vying for him, and then he just kind of works his way through different scenarios. And ultimately, you know, he finds out that he's been chosen for something that he never knew existed. And that's basically how the story unfolded. And once I came up with that plot line, it just it kind of evolved from that point forward. My presumption this will also be, because it says the Joshua Chronicles, that this may end up being a series of novels based on this initial premise. It is. It is, actually. I'm uh, currently getting ready to release a story arc that's going to begin the second part of the trilogy. So um, the first part was actually setting the stage for Joshua and showing his basic you know, rise to power you know, and our influences that he has you know, on the human you know, I guess uh, the human condition about making the world a better place, you know, all of those fluffy catchphrases, you know, where people say they just want to do good. Well, now you've got this man who's got absolutely no interest in power, money, or wealth, and he's got all of this backing by this corporation where he can actually make that type of a difference. So what's this man going to do with it? Intriguing plot line. Yeah, this is the first part of the book, and the second part is, you know, it gets kind of, a little bit hairy in the second trilogy uh, it's going to be more on a global scale it's going to involve a little bit you know politics it's going to bl- uh, involve some more uh, religious artifacts and overtones you know that's going to set the stage for how people believe um, but it's not it's not preachy it's not a religious book and that's something I want to get across you know to a lot of the readers and so far so far a lot of the favorable reviews that I've had have been you know very very um, very very positive um, it's very easy to read. I don't use a lot of big words because I'm not a big word guy. I do enough of that in my normal life. So I wanted to make it something that was catchy, something that could be readable, and something that kind of you know, brings the reader in during the first few pages and leads them from chapter to chapter. Great so, idea. This is uh, 402 pages for a first book effort, a remarkable number of pages, and the plot line sounds intriguing. How did you get interested in writing? You've been wanting to write for a long time, from my understanding. Who were the authors that influenced you the most? 
you know, you're going to hear standard comments from a lot of different people, you know, regarding the same authors like Tom Clancy. Um, believe it or not, Victor Hugo for Les Miserables. I mean, his, you know, he had volumes and volumes of that particular book, but there were elements in it, if you condensed it down, that were very intriguing. Mm. And it was more about the plot line. So he had a small influence on me. The idea for the trilogy and stuff, um, believe it or not, I got from Stephanie Meyer. Um, I reviewed some of her material, and although I may not, you know, agree with some of the storylines and stuff that she has, I was very, very pleased with how she led all of her books into something consecutive that built out one big long story and broke it up into certain books. So that that was the focus of what I wanted to do, and the influence of the authors that you know they actually had on me. Grisham, he he was out there, and some of the stuff I read. Uh, Tim LaFay, Jerry B. Jenkins from the Left Behind series. Those types of things, mostly you know, people that tell good stories that have really rich characters, and a lot of their storylines are very tight. It was it was well thought out before they started writing. Those are the type of things that I I geared myself towards. Now, for our listeners, you mentioned they're well thought out. Did do you work from an outline? Do you work from inspiration? How do you construct, or how did you construct Glorious Incorporated? Um, I actually used my professional background as a consultant. I built out a storyboard. I knew there was a thematic element of what I wanted to convey in this first book. You know, there's always a climax of what you want to reach. And from that point, I just kind of branched out. Um, I stood in my home office. I have a whiteboard. I got some Post-its, and I wrote down specific things I wanted to write about. And then I just kind of arranged them into a story flow. And from that point, you know, I created index cards, and then it started with 30 index cards, and then it blew out to about 200. Uh, Some were chapter-specific, some were specific sections within that chapter. And as I started piecing things together, I started writing. And it just kind of flowed after that. Uh, The book actually was around 550 pages, and then as I was doing the editing process, I pulled out the elements that really didn't, you know, lend itself to the true storyline. Best writing was actually pulled out. It was kind of disappointing, but it did make the story flow. So, would you call this? Did I correctly describe it as an action thriller? Yes, yes. I, it's been classified um, more so on the thriller, the thriller suspense side. There's a lot of action in it, um, but to get to the action, you basically have to lay the fa- the foundation. Everybody's got to understand the characters, the backgrounds, where they come from, and then what their motivation is. But the action starts out, you know, in the first chapter. And who do you think is going to enjoy reading this book? Most of the people that have an emotional connection um, to elements where they like stories that make them think. This is not a short story by any means. It's, it's actually the first part of, like I said, a trilogy that I have planned, but I wrap up things very nicely in this first book. There's not going to be any questions that are left unanswered unless they're leading into the next book. So people that like to experience, you know, like you said, some action, uh, a little bit of thrill, some suspense, suspense. There's a little bit of a love interest in there for our um, protagonist. Uh, I make you hate our primary uh, antagonist. And, you know, everybody wants to see him get what he deserves in the end. He may get it. He may not. It depends, you know, on how I actually want that to flow into the next book. It's more built like the old uh, Kiefer Sutherland 24 series. You have to pretty much read each chapter in order for it to make sense as you go forward. No sense jumping around. Because I answer some questions and it leads into the next. Right. Is there anything in this book that, besides the entertainment value, that you want as a message the reader to take away from this read? The power of choice. That was the first and foremost thing that started this whole development. Uh, If people think about everything that we do in our day-to-day lives, everything is based on decisions that we make. Uh, For instance, would be whether or not you decide to have breakfast at home versus trying to get something on the road. If you have breakfast at home, it may cause you to be late for work, and that may set the tone for the rest of your day. If you decide you want to make work in time, you may decide to get something while you're out. While you're getting something and while you're out, um, it may cost you some money, money you didn't have. Or you may be able to avoid an accident, you know, if you go to a certain restaurant that has your favorite coffee. I mean, everything basically leads to a different threat of reality, and it all comes down to an individual's choice. So that is the basic foundation of what this main character does throughout all of this book. He doesn't second-guess everything that he's done in his life, but he starts to realize that since he's been chosen for a specific objective, 
his choices are not only going to impact his life, but it impacts those around him. And it changes, basically, the threat of their reality. And it molds and shapes, you know, the future events that keep happening. You mentioned this being a corporate story on many levels. Is there anything in your story that addresses the quandary of most businesses, that the ends justify the means? There is to a degree. One of the, you know, there's always good and bad in the book. You always have to have a hero and you always have to have a villain. So if we look at one of the corporations in the book, because you've got a bad corporation and a good corporation vying for this particular individual for their own reasons. As this individual progresses forward, one of the corporations that's really bad, that wants to go after this individual, is solely based on money. The ends for what they want to actually gain have to do with whether this individual is going to do exactly what they want. And it's all about corporate gain. They're all into mergers and acquisitions. I try not to get into much business ease, although I have been told that there's a lot of business references. You know, after 20 years doing it myself, it's kind of hard to pull that stuff out as I'm writing. But there is a sole purpose and a sole focus of the bad corporation solely wanting to, to do everything that they're doing for profit, whereas the good corporation is all about helping out mankind. And it's using its corporate presence and marketplace to actually benefit humanity provide relief, provide donations, do charitable work, those type of things. It's not all about making money for them. And that's, you know, something that you don't see too often with a lot of companies. You see a lot of philanthropy. You see a lot of entrepreneurship. But then you see these companies, you know, that implode on themselves because they've done things the wrong way. Uh, they've scammed people. They've gone belly up because, you know, someone ran off with money from a company and they kind of messed people out of their retirement. I try to focus on certain elements like that, but more so the effect that it has on the people who are involved. They can't do anything about it. The whole idea about the hero is he's the voice for those people because that is the environment he came from. He came from nothing. He lost everything growing up, and now he has the ability to make a difference, and he has a corporation that's going to give him unlimited background and backing at his disposal. Now, Joshua Arden is your main and primary character. Are there other key characters that will carry forward into your next of the series? Yes, there's a, a few characters um, in the corporation Josh works for, like uh, Langston Campbell. Um, he's one of Josh's right-hand right men when he comes up. Um, there's actually an antagonist that works for the horrible company, the enemy in this book, that uh, ultimately decides whether or not he should make the choice to continue to work for them or decide to work for Josh. Um, he has a love interest, uh, the first lady that took him to his interviews, Malia. So we see her evolve a little bit more inside uh, the next part of the series. Uh, and obviously, you know, the, the supernatural element. There's a, there's a few characters out there that nobody really understands what their origins are but they understand the motivation of what they're trying to do, both on the good side and the bad side, and those kind of carry over too. So we've got about four or five main characters that will probably have more prominence in the next series, but instead of this just being between two corporations, which this first book is, uh, the trilogy is going to lead in more, to more of a global direction of where it just it affects every facet, not just corporate entities, but you know political schemes, environments, those type of things. And it just it builds on that. In writing Glorious Incorporated, is there a particular scene that really is the capstone or sets the tone for your series? Um, I don't know how I can say this without giving too much away, but there is a lot of emotional ups and downs for the main hero in the book. And he loses some people that are very close to him because he really doesn't have much to hang on to. So as he evolves throughout this book, he's an intrepid college graduate. He gets a big city job, you know, out of New York City, and he just wants to do his job. Well, then he knows that something funky is kind of happening, and he progresses really fast. And then he starts to make really good decisions. And then a tragedy strikes him when he's on one of his particular jobs, missions, with someone that he became very close with. And from that point forward, he wanted to find out answers. So then the next few chapters lead into, you know, him discovering those answers. It changes everything for him is when someone very close to him meets with another tragedy, and he doesn't have many people left in his life, and he's decided, that's it, I'm done, 
I've had enough. So then from that point forward, he decides to embrace his destiny. He decides to use the corporation who has offered their backing for him and whatever needs he feels to complete the mission and to make sure that good basically triumphs over evil. Sounds like a fascinating read. Were there challenges in completing Glorious Incorporated? From a normal perspective, uh, yes. Um, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not independently wealthy, so I have a normal job just like everybody else. Um, finding the time to actually write, I mean, because this, this novel probably took a little over 16 to 18 months to complete. Um, so keeping a normal corporate job, you know, raising a family with three children under the age of eight, Uh, Most of it was about timing for me to complete. As far as some of the stuff that I've talked to other writers about, story block, I don't really know where to take the direction of this next chapter or what I'm going to do with this character. Um, Because I had spent some time up front, you know, investing in the storyline itself, I basically created the entire story on these index cards. I just, when I wrote, I had to fill in those index cards to actually make up the sections and the chapters. So for me, it was more so about finding the time to actually get it done. I had a deadline set for myself, and I almost made it, and then I finally got that completed. So that was basically my only challenge, just the timing in itself, making sure that when the inspiration hit me, I had something with me so I could at least jot down the notes. Being a busy professional, you know, just like everyone else who's, who's trying to get into the business, um, you can't really force inspiration. If you have a good idea about a storyline or you've gotten hung up on something and you haven't written anything in like three or four days, and then it hits you like at 3.30 in the morning, you've got to have that pen and paper right next to your bed so you can at least write down the note, and then the next day, you know, build the bridge. I learned a lot of different things as I was writing this. I mean, I lost some really good ideas because I didn't have any of that information or didn't think about, you know, writing the idea down, but... I've learned a lot in the last three years. You've done a wonderful job. The story is Glorious Incorporated, the Joshua Chronicles. Where can our listeners get copies of your book? Um, It is available all over Amazon. Um, You can get uh, a Kindle copy. Uh, It's priced really reasonable right now. Also, uh, print-on-demand for paperback as well as hardback directly from Amazon. Uh, It's available on Barnes & Noble. Uh, I just uh, set a deal with a narrator, so the audio version of this should be out around Thanksgiving 2014. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, the story arc for the next one in the series should be available on Amazon within the next uh, six to eight weeks. So I expect to have it out uh, no later than uh, beginning of May 2014. Fabulous. And you do have a website as well, or one that's under development. I do. www.stephennealmore.com. Thank you, Stephen, for joining us today. And we uh, hope to talk with you in the future about the next in the series. This one, Glorious Incorporated, The Joshua Chronicles. Our author, Stephen Neal Moore. Thank you for joining me today, sir. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate it. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled, It's Okay, Everybody's Different. And our author is Paula E. Gelbach. 
Paula, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Your book is charming and beautifully illustrated. Great stories. I would say that this probably is designed for children's read. What was your motivation in putting this book together? My motivation was in trying to get the word out to reach children uh, that the very youngest, because that's when it's important to start, about liking one another, liking one another's differences, realizing we all have differences, and establishing the groundwork for acceptance of one another so that as they get older, um, the bullying might be greatly reduced. Oh, great. And dislike of one another. Would you call this also a celebration of differences? Definitely, definitely. I don't think we often think that being different is uh, always such a good thing. But in um, in the one, uh, they have a good time with it. In the first uh, poem uh, that's called the Purple Bottomus, he has a purple bottomus, and he's so happy and proud of it. But no one else does, but they have something else that they're just as proud of, and they end up all enjoying one another and appreciating one another's differences. And it's done in a first-grade way, <laughs> or a second-grade way, that they can enjoy it. And actually, younger people can be read to, and it's a, it's a picture book, and Purple Hippopotamus is really exciting. He, he's really kind of handsome, so... He, he's the main, so is that your main character, the Purple... And there are three stories in It's Okay, Everybody's Different. Good. And the three stories are just different stories. They're not hooked together in any way, with the exception of the theme. And so in the first one, yes, my grandson, at the time he was four, my youngest grandson, whispered, Grandma, do you know, have you heard of the hippopotamus with the purple bottomus? Well, it cracked me up at the time. I didn't ever come out with anything like that. And I started to think about that. And I remember in my teaching career how children were different. And it just sort of clicked with me. So I took off on that. That was the key to the beginnings of, of, the, of the story and of the book. And you used animals, which are charming to look at. You've done a, done a great job in steering the, uh, the illustrator to do a, a fabulous job. Why did you, yes. use, why did you yes. use animals instead of children as characters in your well, book? Well, it's much easier to get across a difficult, could-be-difficult uh, topic or a pointed topic or something with animals because you don't, children don't personalize animals that they are them, you know. And so um, it, it just seemed the, the natural thing to do. And all of my stories uh, in my books are all animals. And I think that is important. And it took me quite a while to find um, that. That was a big holdup. The book was really put together a couple of years before it was uh, submitted to Ex Libris um, because of the, looking for the um, illustrator. Uh, that that could do the kind of picture that I sort of envisioned would go well with the uh, text. You mentioned bullying as a, a topic. Did you touch on that specifically in your book? Yes, I did, but a very gently inter, a gentle, uh, introduction to this one. The first story is a, a poem about the hippopotamus with the purple bottomus, and the second one is about a... Um, a wasp, actually, who has a friend, a ladybug, and his mother. But he has a group who suddenly just start to pick on him. And he doesn't know how to handle this. And it's very upsetting because his friends are all in the group. But he goes, the main, the main theme on this one is to have children understand that it's okay to go and talk this over with your mother and make sure that she knows what's going on and take her advice and um, or tell a grown-up, uh, even a teacher or someone that the child feels comfortable with. And, of course, this little bug has another little bug, the ladybug, <laughs> who is his best friend, who instills in him his worth, tells him that, well, they might not like you and they might be picking on you, but you are so important to me and to other people because of your 
kindness and your caring and all that and those things uh, mean a whole lot so don't ever lose those you know so we've we've supplanted the uh, bad with some good fabulous <laughs> uh, ideas that uh, so it begins that way um, and that's about the substance of, of that one um, that that kind of um, differences the difference between the bully and and uh, and mother's approach and the Wasp and all that. When they're reading this book and, and when others are, are viewing it, I'm sure that you have an underlying theme and maybe many underlying themes. Do you reinforce those in the, uh, in the teaching process of writing this and telling the story? Yes, definitely. Well, when you say teaching, I'll, I'll start with the third. The third story is about the differences in teaching. Um, I was taught as a youngster um, to be fearful of uh, the art lessons that my teacher presented. She was the type that had to be exactly the way she wanted it, not the way we could produce it, hmm. the way she wanted it. But I learned that, that if I ever became a teacher, and this was like in first grade, I was going to make sure that anybody who worked hard, work was accepted. And, um, uh, and so... That involved that came very heavily to play in my own teaching, to accept what children do, and there's always a way to to praise it and to be thankful for it and admire it, you know. But somebody else might not think so, but that's okay. That's different. They do something different, but this is valuable too. And um, so I did use it in my teaching even before the book. I'm a retired teacher now. But I never forgot that, and it was so important that it just stuck, you know, stuck with me. And uh, I'm trying to, uh, I'm, I am not just trying, I'm writing a second book that is not, it's a companion. It's not a serial, uh, a book group. It, it does have animals, but different animals. There are some similarities, like there are three stories in it. But the um, this carries the theme of bullying a little further, so that older children, well, not that much older, another grade, might <clears throat> grasp it, uh, might enjoy it a little, maybe a little bit more uh, by grasping it more. Um, when uh, certain uh, bullying scene, bullying action takes place, and how that is handled, and how the different animals. Realize that book is called. It isn't out yet, but it's called. It's with the sleepers, so it'll be coming out. Let your light shine, and it's okay. Let your light shine. They both start with it's okay. Beautiful. And uh, and and if you let your light shine, that means that you are doing good things. And hugs are good things, and they turn around bullying like you never believe. Fabulous, <laughs> fabulous. Well, those are important stories and, and important values that need to be instilled in small children, and hopefully it'll carry right. through to their adulthood, and they'll also retain those values and that value system. Who do you think is going to enjoy reading your book? I know it's directed towards children, but I, I have a sneaky suspicion teachers and maybe adults might enjoy sharing this. Oh, I do think so. I think, it, yes, I think it's fun for uh, adults who like, like the stories. And I think they have a good feeling and teachers in that it's telling something that they believe in, too, and that they want to get across. It's another means. There are many means to get to an end, and this is one one method that by reading the story and maybe even having a, oh, the adults would call it a seminar or something. We call it Bible school or a series of, and then make bulletin boards. That's what the, uh, there is a workbook for the, for the first book that's finished. And it, uh, it gives ideas for discussion for mothers at home if they're reading to their children before they go to sleep uh, or whenever, as well as teachers in the classroom, activities, I mean, artwork as well as discussion questions, as well as making puppet shows. You know, animals make wonderful puppet shows. Absolutely. And, um, all kinds of activities. And that that workbook is on, um, it can be found on the United Church of Christ Resources um, website. Excellent. They, they specifically asked me for that. 
I didn't uh, put that out necessarily. I did it independently with my sister. There are two names on that. Beautiful. She's also a teacher. But um, but anyway, I just sort of mentioned that that's a and that I don't know is uh, you go look it up on the um, United Church of Christ uh, website for for resources. They have a lot of different things and read about it and how it's put together and how it might help. You don't even have to have a lot of them because, well, you can because they're not that expensive, but you just have one and copy pages out for your classes. You've mentioned this. uh, You've mentioned a a church entity. Is this a story that possibly could be used in Sunday school lessons or Bible school themes? Definitely. The one that you read does not mention school, uh, Bible school, or any church, or any denomination, or anything. But I, it is such, it is written in such a way that it can be used that way by the teacher in the, picking it up from some denom, you know, using it in their own Bible school or Sunday school. Room. And all you need to do is add the belief system that you. Um, it fits. I mean, it just fits. So your book is motivational in addition to being inspirational. Right. Exactly. How would you introduce this book to someone that doesn't know you or know of your, your history but might be a good suspect in reading your book? Oh, my. That's, that's a learning experience in and of itself, you know. Just because you feel you can write good books doesn't necessarily you're a good introducer. But I've learned that if you're passionate about what you do, it sort of just comes. I would say that uh, in this day and age, with so much conflict and all, we need to start with, with children who are as young as possible can understand things that way. And the earlier we can get to children to accept people and like people, the less bullying, maybe the, you know, the less war we'll have. Who knows? I like to you know think way beyond things. Eventually, not in my time or your time, maybe, but it's a start, and it's an exciting one, and it's a fun read, and children will like it, and in different grades in the beginning, kindergarten, first or second, they'll get different things out of it. The older they are, the more they can discuss uh, the acceptance of their differences and what they contribute to uh, the process of the world and getting along. This is a fun-looking book. Uh, the illustrations are spectacular, and the stories and the verses are wonderful. The title of the book is It's Okay, Everybody's Different. Uh, was there anything challenging about putting your book together? Yes. Finding the illustrator that I felt carried out the theme I wanted to have carried out. And I asked everybody and their kiss and cousin if they knew of a good illustrator, and for about two years... I, you know, followed up all kinds of leads, and a lot of them, of course, were too busy, and a lot of them were uh, out of my price range and so forth. But I, by just by accident, um, one of my college classmates, two of them, and myself were having lunch one day, just about a year ago now, and um, I asked them, and the one gal went to church with with this artist, and she said, I wonder if she'll do it. Call her. So I did and sent her a copy of the book. And she also has different, she explained it, diff, 10 different grandchildren. And um, it, the theme stuck with her. Beautiful. Uh, her differences were more like um, autism. And, uh, well, and she found she had twins and she had uh, Down syndrome. And you know different things like that, right? And uh, getting along that way, and ex- one child, one grandchild accepting another grandchild's uh, inability to do certain things, or was very important to her. And uh, she too was very active in the. It was very. It was. It was a godsend. It really well, was. Beautiful. After all, I was about given up, but I think she portrays that somehow. Her. Uh, illustrations. Are, uh, yeah, her illustrations are, are not only uh, nicely detailed, but they, they have that whimsical value that maybe a child might have had his hand in crafting the artwork. Paula, is there anything relating to the last segment of your book about teacher Katie 
that had a lasting impression on your choices and your style of teaching when you became an educator? My teacher, when I was in the first grade, who terrorized me. The last session of the day was art. We all sat around a table, and she put up something like a jar of pussy rolls or something in the middle of the table, and we all had to draw it, and had to look just like the pussy rolls. So I learned at an early age, and I couldn't draw those pussy rolls, mm-hmm. look like pussy rolls or anything. <laughs> and I was the last one to leave most days. Wow. I mean, she didn't have pussy rolls every day, and some things I could draw better than others, so I got home a little bit not too late. <laughs> Mother was yes. worried, and I was coming down the street crying, and I, but in that day, parents didn't go to school and talk to the teachers like they do today. I don't think that would repeat. First of all, I don't think teachers would do that so much today. That was before all this wonderful teacher education and good teachers that we have. Um, but that was long ago. But, I, but it made me, I think, a better teacher in, in reverse because I was aware that not everybody can do what the teacher <laughs> puts forth or can, does not learn in the same way. Mm-hmm. Like some learn through hearing and better the lesson heard or, re- or read or read to them. That's a hearing thing. And so that bordered on that and I think helped me. Is that the question you asked me or am I off the track? Yes. <laughs> yes. Well. I, uh, uh, it, it helped me in my own teaching. Beautiful. So Katie... Um, became me as a as a the polar bear teacher. Fabulous. And then so that's that's a kind of autobiographical a little bit. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for sharing that background uh, story. Uh the title of this book is It's Okay. Everybody's different and our author Paula E. Gelbach. Paula, where can we get copies of your book? Um Ex Libris is the publisher and they have um uh, Barnes and Noble has uh, it available on uh, as an ebook, and uh, of course at Amazon they have it. And uh, you can always call Ex Libris, um, and they would send you where you needed to go. And they can keep in contact with you on. Do you personally? You personally have a website, don't you? Yes, I do. I just, thank you for mentioning that, so that that's uh, and, that's a good thing. And where where is your website? What is the address for that? I, I don't have it in front of me. I'm sorry. That's okay. I think I believe I've located it. It's paulagelbach.com. And that's spelled G-E-L-B-A-C-H. Thank you. I'm sorry. Not a problem. You can tell I'm older. This this uh, Internet stuff doesn't come first. Oh, what's on Internet? <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like something to keep your hair in place. Okay. <laughs> That's okay, Paula. You've done a wonderful job, and thank you for joining me today. I thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. All right. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Demand Healing, the Impolite Study of Mood and Ego Remission. And our author is psychotherapist and author, Russ Hoover. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. 
Glad to be here. This is uh, an intriguing idea. Uh, the idea of a demand healing certainly grabbed my attention. What is the purpose of the title, and how did you get inspired to put this book into print? Well, uh, the book is on uh, psychotherapy, basically, um, Jay, and um, uh, I, maybe my credentials but probably could speak to those just a little bit. Uh, my first uh, 15 years in practice, uh, I worked, uh, I was employed at the uh, local medical college here, A.T. Still University, where I taught uh, interns and uh, medical interns and externs and psychiatric residents, as well as uh, graduate students from the, the university, which is Truman State University in Kirksville. <clears throat> and, uh, and during that time, you know, like the psychiatric residents, they had to have 500 hours to complete their residency. But at the same time, uh, uh, the, the situation was fairly good because I had a lot of practice I was doing then. So, uh, you know, I'm not just somebody sitting out here <laughs> who's never had much acquaintance with it making some kind of statement here. Uh, you know, I've been in practice. I've seen thousands of clients and patients in, in therapy. So uh, that's kind of my, my, my background. So uh, what, was your, what was your question there? <laughs> Well, I've forgotten my question now that you okay. mentioned it. I, I think I've been on the couch too long. I was just asking. No, I haven't been. I'm sorry, Russ. I was just asking what motivated you to put this together. I understand your, your approach is a little bit revolutionary. Uh, why yeah. did you decide to, to put this into print? Well, um, knowing a lot about the different psychotherapies, uh, I um, just uh, you know, I thought, felt that it was kind of well, I kind of wanted to write about some of the things I had discovered. So my, 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 actually, I, I would say I've discovered my own little brand. I'm, I'm a founder of my own brand of psychotherapy. But, of course, it's based on what I've known about uh, therapy generally and what I've, what I've taught about it. I think one, another thing that kind of inspired me, not only, you know, I, I know about this stuff, I better write about it and let, you know, let other people know, is to, you know, pass on a little bit of what uh, I, you know, I've learned um, and, uh, you know, people have helped me get through school, helped me get where I'm at, and, uh, I, you know, I think I'm obligated to some degree to let people know what I'm, what I'm able to do and what I've found out. Expand on the term demand healing. What does that exactly mean? Well, uh, as I say in the preface there, uh, that can mean a number of different things to different people. I, would, I don't know, like, the average person might see the book. I kind of wonder what they would think that might mean. They might think it means that you're demanding a certain kind of, procedure or something <laughs> but um and you know that's i would say that i'm not going to complain about that kind of interpretation but basically the the idea is um uh, and maybe we can get into some of this is the, the therapeutic procedure uh I'm, I'm explaining how to use a particular kind of information like demand uh, and a, man, a demand is something with which is said with a lot of uh, let's say absolute certainty Actually, in the uh, uh, copyright page, I, I define demand and also healing. So we've got demand, which is a statement which is put in very, uh, what, absolute kind of terms. And uh, then that is used, a kind of a powerful information is used in uh, a healing. And uh, healing is a term that uh, uh, is uh, technically, I mean, I, I think it means a lot of a lot of things to different people, but uh, it's a, a cure that's um, based by on the body's own mechanisms. In, the, in other words, you're augmenting the client's uh, own uh, healing processes. And uh, it's kind of interesting that the uh, medical college of work was A.T. Still. This was his home uh, base. I don't know if you know, he started osteopathic medicine. And, of course, their original concept was self-healing, you know. Right. Augmented body, so it was kind of in, in in conjunction with that. Although I'd say psychotherapy generally is kind of a self healing. Is there anything? Uh, this this book uh, sounds as though it might be a little complex for regular folks like me. Is this designed to be a supplement for students and maybe current mental health workers, or is it a little broader than that? Well, I would say, Jay, it's a little bit of both, but uh, you know, I think uh, people that are associated with the medical field uh, would, uh, and I think um, average consumers, at least maybe average reading, they could probably get uh, a lot out of the first section. The first section of the book really is just a 
a critique. I'm saying, hey, why do we need another system of psychotherapy? And I'm saying, you know, here's some of the <laughs> some of the way that the current therapies work, which are really uh, one of the criticisms I make, for example, in one of the sections is that a, a lot of the therapies are, are really treating the effect rather than the cause. They're not going after the cause; they're going after. The but right. back to your back to your question, uh, it, I think probably basically, especially section two of the book, section three. There's three sections, and the section two and section three would be very good for, and really probably is made for students of therapy or practitioners now, or maybe physicians or other uh, professional people that might be involved with it with the mental health field. I love the title of your first chapter, which, uh, since I'm Canadian, I uh, gravitated towards getting around Seattle with a perfectly good map of Saskatoon. Uh, evidently a little bit of humor and tongue-in-cheek interpretation on some of your observations. Yeah, one of the things I even say in the, in the book, I think it's in the first section, I mentioned that uh, to, to make it digest a little bit easier, I use humor. And I, I kind of use humor throughout the, the book as much as I can. I think some of it's kind of subtle, but it's. Uh, I think humor is a good mechanism to get people interested in reading. So uh, uh, also I thought that might help it be more less seem less technical in way. If you can say something in a funny way, then that, you know, that can be... Uh, a lot of times that can stir people's interest. Yes. It, it's, it certainly way. can, yes. Is there anything about your book that's radically different? Uh, your title and your approach appears to be radical. Right. Let me just say the approach is really totally new, and really the centerpiece of the book is Section 2. And in that section, I'm just I'm just explaining the, the basic functions of mood, how it works, and uh, basic properties uh, I have in that section, I, uh, which I call the laws of botheration. And botheration is a, is a term I used the word bother rather than some more technical term like desensitization, um, <clears throat> because I think most people understand what bother is. <laughs> so, so we got these laws of bother. Actually, there's three bo- laws of botheration, but it's just basic. It's like like the subtitle is the advanced study. So it's a, it's a more in-depth study of mood. And I'm, I'm saying these ideas that are presented are, uh, you know, they're, they're, you can't find them in any other book, let's just put it that way. So it's just kind of basic, simple uh, kind of things about mood. For example, let's say if I told you a joke, let's suppose it was really not just an ordinary joke, but it was a joke you found really, really funny, a super joke. How would you know it was that funny? Hmm. I have no idea. <laughs> he would laugh involuntarily, would you? Well, I mean, if it was there you the go. Funniest joke you ever heard? You'd, you'd be, you know, you'd have a hard time holding it back. So, just a simple example like that, you say, "Well, mood occurs involuntarily," and the funnier the joke was, the harder you would have a harder time you'd have preventing your laughter. Mm-hmm. So, the thing about mood, and that is the the more intense the mood the harder it is to uh, not express it or, or give yourself away. For example, if it was really, really funny joke and it was inappropriate for you to laugh, you'd probably say you'd have you know, um, a hard time not laughing or at least letting people know you're laughing. You have to turn your head or something. We, we forget that mood isn't just some uh, you know, empty thing. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's got substance to it. It's got an anatomical response. For example... A really funny joke, you might see that people's eyes are watering, their their face can flush, you're having, uh, you know, you're having these hormonal, these, these uh, transmitter effects that are causing these things in your body. You have a, probably a surge of uh, uh, neurotransmitter called dopamine, which would be pushed in a little bit with uh, some norepinephrine. So, I mean, those are, those are going, those are systemic responses. Mood is really a systemic response, and it means it goes through your entire body. It gets in your bloodstream, the, horm- the hormones, you know, the, the norepinephrine. These things get in your bloodstream, and that's what you feel when you're having a mood. I was watching an interview yesterday that dealt with negative input and how it affects our lives, even though it may be benign in the way it's, it's presented to us. It, it leaves a lasting impression. How do you deal with negative impressions that are programming individuals to make wrong and maybe depressing decisions? Well, if it was a clinical issue, um, there would be a compulsive aspect to it. If it was 
like they're like probably every day we're seeing some things that are really not not positive. They're they're things that maybe are a kind of critical but necessary for us to look at, and uh, we 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 kind of have I, I say we have a prejudice against bad mood uh, because it it serves a protective function. Really, it's not you know it's one of, it's it's a very uh, big. Uh, part of our you know, biology, really, our, our, our thing getting us upset, the mechanisms which get us upset. Yes. We forget about that. So, I mean, we say, well, it's, it serves an adaptive, protective function. Of course, the mood is, is unhappy. But in a clinical situation, usually you're having some really significant problem with their with a negative thing. They're obsessing about it, for example. They're thinking about these all the time, so you have this this chronic level of stress hormones that are running through the system, which, uh, in that sense, there it's um, it's having a, a caustic and not really good effect on your system. Yes, one high profile case would have been Michael Jackson, who, as a child, was uh, you know as a teenager had had uh, acne issues and uh, carried that right. that concern with him uh, throughout his life. It was still a negative impact that that affected him. Right. One of the some things that might be an issue for me might not. But they might be my own personal issues, but there there are a lot of issues that we call or universal, like financial issues. But the way people look, typically for most people, that, that can be an issue. They're you know they're picking around on their face. Of course, you and I are saying, well, hair looks all right, but they're in there kind of messing around with it because uh, to the, our self images and really an important reason our self image. We want people, it's in our best interest for people to feel good about us. I mean, like, that's kind of what people, one of the things people look at, how, how they affect and how they interact and the impressions they make on others. Tell us what you would like readers to take away from reading your book, Demand Healing. I, th- I think uh, one of the, the uh, I'd really say for my own feelings, is the Section 2 and Section 3, because those are the more... Uh, let's say, innovative and new things they aren't going to get in any other book. The first section is just a critique of the current mental health system, really. Uh, the, the faults that, are in, that I see in basic psychotherapies. Uh, I think one of the things people might get in reading my book is like, like if you read a book on physics, you might see how, here's how gravity works. I even use an example saying, okay, gravity has this, this is the way gravity works. It bends space and so forth. I have a section on that. So I say, well, you know, mood has this, the way it works. Like uh, uh, an example I use is for people that sometimes that I see as clients, I might, I might say, okay, so let's suppose you drove up to my house to visit me. You were a good friend of mine, but you see my car's been somebody smashed in my car. It's all mangled in there. So you go in the house, and here I am sitting, drinking a cup of coffee, and watching TV, and. Uh, uh, and I don't look like I'm bothered a bit. So why wouldn't I be bothered? And what we forget is, well, maybe maybe I don't know about it. Sometimes you say, well, you're a psychologist. You'd know how to cope with stuff like that. Right. But maybe I just don't know about it. So you say to me, hey, Russ, what happened to your car? I say, well, is something wrong with my car? Well, yeah, it's, it's all banged in out there. <clears throat> so then how do I feel then? When you tell me, hey, your car's all smashed in, how would I feel then? Probably not really feeling very comfortable emotionally. I'm probably getting a little bit upset at that point, right? Right. But now, then I go out, probably rush out to see how, what's wrong with my car, and then I see, well, it wasn't my car. You you would mistaken my car for another car. I see my car's all right. So now how do I feel? Suddenly, I'm not bothered. So I was unbothered, and then I got bothered when you told me that. I go out and see it's not my car, and now I'm not bothered anymore. Now, what caused my mood to go up and down like that. What caused me to be in a good mood, in a bad mood, and then back to a good mood? Caffeine. No, no, it wasn't caffeine, no. I recognize it's not my car, so I see that it's not my car. So that conveys to me that there's anything wrong with my car, so suddenly now, I know you weren't lying, you just got to mix up with another car. It looked, looked a little bit like my car, but I can see my car's over there in the corner, and you didn't see it. <clears throat> So what I, I guess the, the point of that illustration is, what's turning my mood on and off from a, from a good mood to a bad mood to a good mood is not, you know, some, 
some serotonin or dopamine going off in my head. That's a secondary feature of mood. But it's what I know. So mood is a function of awareness. That's one of the things we see. Mood is a function of awareness. But and the knowledge. first of botheration is you got to know about it. If it's a bother, you got to know about it. It's got to be something not okay, and it has to be something that matters to you. You have those three ingredients, and once those three ingredients come together, I don't care who it is, you're going to be bothered. So mood is caused when those three ingredients, you know about it, it's not okay, and it matters to you. If you take one of those ingredients out, if I know about it, it's not okay, but it doesn't really matter to me too much, I'm still not going to be bothered. So you got to have those three. So I guess what I'm saying is that would be something most people would probably benefit about in their mental health daily, it's to know how mood works. It's not... You know, I don't take a pill to make these, these feelings go up and down. Second law of botheration is what causes mood's intensity. And that goes to the, the third part of the three ingredients, and that's how much it matters. Not just that it matters, but how much it matters. The more that it matters, the more bothered I would be. Right. And I say in one of the sections of the book, the rules that govern mood are more obvious as the mood intensifies. And that's the way with any force. A good way to look at mood is just a force, okay? So mood is a force, kind of like wind, uh, amperage. Uh, these are forces, uh, like wind at two or three miles an hour, we, we aren't going to be able to see the destructive properties of wind at a low, low level. Same way as mood. And the more intense level the moods are, the more uh, uh, caustic they can be to the system. So... Those are kind of, I think that would be a section, like section two is just an in-depth study of mood. I think a lot of people, even your average person, but especially more somebody just like a, a professional or a provider, uh, would be, um, might be very useful for them to understand these things. Absolutely. I, you can predict these things. Yeah, go ahead, Jay. Yeah, I was just uh, going to suggest you highlight for the uh, listeners perhaps the most complicated or challenging part of writing all of the uh, material you've put into this book. You've got a long history as a psychotherapist yeah. and as a as a lecturer and, and teacher and, and a, a very broad background that you're incorporating into this book. Was there anything that was challenging about putting all of that experience into one 233-page read? Um, you know, I'd say really... This may sound silly, but I do a lot as a psychologist. I do a lot of paperwork, psychological reports. These things are really kind of dull and boring. The book, I really enjoyed writing a lot of the book. It was just sometimes it was time consuming. Sometimes I had to meet some certain deadlines. But I mean, in general, I just it's just kind of a type of writing I I enjoy. I really uh, just to say, be honest with you, I, I really enjoyed writing the book. Um, another thing, I, 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 some of the things that are so new, I kind of realized that, uh, uh, that some of these things would be really maybe kind of very important for maybe even in a historical sense for people to know. I'll give you an example. One of the things that the book comes out, and I don't know, this is, this, as far as I know, I, I'm the only one that's ever said anything like this, and that is that thought of itself is never pathological. It's never irrational. One, one of the questions, how do we tell an irrational thought from a thought that's just wrong? You know, if I think your, your name was Harry and it's Jay, then that's wrong. But it's not irrational. It's not something that's harmful. <clears throat> so I'm kind of looking at some of these very important aspects as they apply to psychotherapy because if you're thinking any thought, it's, it's just a thought of itself, you know, thought is localized in my brain up here. Mood, on the other hand, is systemic. So traditionally, there's four things they, they consider that are related to mental disorders. It's uh, abnormal perception, uh, delusional thought, uh, and very gross abnormal behavior, and then emotional features. And what I'm saying in the book, all those are emotionally. The core of all the, the mental disorders is mood. And it's bad mood, it isn't good mood. <laughs> so those are concepts that you aren't going to get anywhere. And I just, to my, I, was, I enjoyed saying, hey, these are things people know. So the, the writing, I would say, uh, was really kind of fun. There was at times it was challenging. How do I say it? And how do I write it in a way that's correct, scientific, yet, yet interesting? 
and you know, I spoke earlier about you know making things humorous and so forth is a way to help people enjoy the writing. That's a great way to do it, and that would certainly set your book apart from the rest out there, having a little humor along with some in-depth psychological profiling and and, uh, information that they can use. The title of the book is Demand Healing, The Impolite Study of Mood and Ego Remission, and our author, Russ Hoover. Russ, tell me where we get copies of your book. Well, you can get it on the Internet. Um, um, Ex Libris is the publisher. Uh, As far as I know, it's, it's... You, know, you can get it at Amazon, probably any of the websites or your local bookstore. You can have them order it. That's a great way to do it. And they can also keep in contact with you by following you on the Internet by putting a uh, search under your name, Russ Hoover, H-O-O-V-E-R. Thank you, Russ, for joining me today. Pleasure. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.